Matthew chapter 7. I'm a really lousy farmer. I had a nice I had a garden once. It took so much work and produced so little food that I never did it again. I've killed many plants in my offices over the years. That's why I don't have any now. But I can grow grass. I have a wonderful crop of grass about that tall. Green blades of beauty on the, on the uh, south side of my house. Mike Anderson brought his, his big tractor rototiller over and worked up the soil. And, and previously I had put a whole load of compost and, and uh, had it tilled in and actually planted grass. And then we've tilled it up again. And this time when we tilled it, I got my slave, I mean my hired uh, high school student over there to help me rake it out, and we put, we put uh, lime on to sweeten the soil, and we put fertilizer, and I put the seed, and I put the stuff to cover the seed, and I'm out there in my bathroom watering it every morning. And, uh, and boy, I've got a nice crop of grass growing up. Good grass requires some ground preparation, and so does good reconciliation. And the ground that we need to prepare for reconciliation is in us, not in others, when we think we've been wronged. The ground that we need to till begins with one of the most misused passages in the, in the Scripture. Follow as I read from Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First, remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We're going to talk about two things today. My, my, my wonderfully supportive mother criticized me for my notes being sort of blank that you have in your bulletin there. And she said, great notes, it's a blank piece of paper. I said, no, it's not. There's two points. And I didn't know how to put stuff down for you to record. You can write it down. You know, a famous preacher said one time, somebody said, how many points does your sermon have? And he said, every time it sticks you, that's a point. There's two things I want to share with you today in the big picture of saying, how do I get ready to have reconciliation? And the first one is this. The attitude of reconciliation is humility. Now, as we look at Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to spend a fair amount of time today telling you what not to understand from that passage. That's bad communication. I went to the National Fire Academy, spent a whole week to learn how to say, always say one thing positively. So I'm going to spend the first part of this sermon saying, I want you to understand clearly what this passage does not teach. And the reason is because so many people, like I heard this week, misuse this passage. The world has an understanding of this passage And uh, it's often quoted by unbelievers who reject some form of morality. 
This week I was listening to the radio and there was a discussion by some talk radio people about something on the Today Show. And on the Today Show they had a, had a topic they were discussing apparently, which was college girls, good looking college girls, dating older rich men as a way to work their way through college. Okay, now you can, you can do the math yourself on that. The fella who was the guest on the show was somebody who's very wealthy. And he said, now I would never do that, I'm happily married and so on. But there, he was talking to a couple of female journalists on the show and they were discussing uh, this apparently somewhat common practice of good looking uh, young girls connecting with older rich men and... Uh, you know, people will say to those men, you know, she's only after one thing. And he says, I know, and I don't care. And so they were debating the morality of it. And what do you think the rich male guest said? Who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? In other words, everybody gets to do whatever they want to do. Hey, it's not our place to judge if she's making that choice and he's making that choice. And that's how this passage is most often used in our society. Judge not as soon as you say something is right or wrong. Judge not. We say gay marriage is wrong. Judge not. We say a certain religion is wrong. Judge not. Abortion is wrong, judge not. And you go right down the list. Our society wants us to be like the children's song I heard this week through my window of my office from the daycare next door. I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. And what, that, what the world wants us to mean by that is, don't you ever tell me something's wrong. And don't you ever tell me I have to do something. This verse is most often used by people who want to avoid absolute morality, or they want to avoid taking a stand which would upset somebody about their morality. And there's another famous passage of Scripture coupled together with it. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they'd set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what do you say? So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And again, people like to say, you know, who are you to judge? You know, if you're without sin, you go ahead and condemn them. And by that, they wipe away all morality. Okay. Some people want very much to believe that God never condemns anyone for anything. He loves everyone. He's the great benevolent grandfather in the sky. Everybody's going to get to heaven somehow, some way. And if we are Christ followers, they say we should just be like him, because he said, judge not. But if though that this verse in Matthew 7, if it means we should never judge anyone, then we would expect the rest of the New Testament to be in agreement. Instead, what we find is this. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You cannot have your senses exercised to discern good and evil without making some judgments about what is right and what is wrong. The principle from God's word is this. Spiritual maturity is characterized by discernment. Discernment, which results in the judgment of right and wrong. Clearly, God says we have to be careful and we have to evaluate and make judgments about things that are right and wrong. 1 John 4.1 says a similar thing. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Now, he's not talking about ghosts. He's talking about the, the, the inner workings of a person and what they believe and what they say. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That verse is ripe with judgment. He says, in the world there will be false religion and true belief in Christ, and you have to be careful and you have to be analytical. Romans 16, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. He says, within the church, there will be problems, there will be divisions, there will be wrong beliefs, and you have to be careful and know what is right and what is wrong. 1 Peter 4, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the, the gospel of God? Perhaps the most effective instruction, of course, as to what does Matthew 7, 1 mean, comes in Matthew 7, 2. And Matthew 7, 15. Let's look there first and then go back to verse 2. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, verse 16. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. Verse 20, therefore by their fruits you will know them. That passage is, is ripe with judgment. God says, look, there's going to be some true and some false Christians, there, and the true are known by their fruit, their positive fruit, the false are known by their negative fruit, and you have to be able to make a judgment call. And so God does not prohibit judgment. Now, before I get into, I guess what I would say is a little more positive thing here. Does God encourage us to be judgmental? No. Does God encourage us to be mean and nasty in our analysis of people and movements in society? No. But does God encourage us to exercise wise discernment? Yes. Look at verse 2. 
of Matthew 7. For with the judgment that you judge, let me just paraphrase a little bit. For with whatever the standard of judgment is that you use, you will be judged in return. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Christ is not condemning judgment. He is correcting the common standard of judgment. And the common standard of judgment in his day was the same as ours, and it's illustrated by this story that he told. The Pharisee went to the temple to pray. And he stood and prayed with himself like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, that's the old King James word for a tax collector, the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this man went down to his, his house righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee's standard of judgment was himself. He had a set of rules and he evaluated himself by himself, and by the failure of others. And he would look at the failure of others and say, look how bad that man is. I'm quite good by comparison. And that was how they judged. This tax collector who came to God, he judged himself by God's standard in the word. The tax collector was measuring himself by God's standard, and when he did that, he realized he fell significantly short of the mark. And the thing that we have to learn about entering into reconciliation is this. We need to judge ourselves by God's standard first, then judge the other person by God's standard also. He said, how can you see when you've got a plank in your own eye to take the twig out of the other person's eye? Really, if we understand the words, it would probably be more like a splinter and a board. If we don't exercise self-judgment, we are not prepared to come to someone who has wronged us and enter into judgment with them. God doesn't say, never talk to somebody about a wrong. He doesn't say that. 
But he says, when you're going to talk to someone, get the plank out of your eye first. How do you do that? You do that by exercising God's standard of judgment toward you. You see, our, our natural inclination is selfish, but the godly inclination would be this. To look at ourselves and say, you know what? I'm not perfect. I don't pick up on every cue. I misspeak sometimes. I fail to control myself sometimes. I don't expect perfection from you any more than I expect it from myself. See, our, our human way of thinking is to go, I expect perfection from you. Now me, there's a reason why I'm this way. Look at verse 2. With the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And that's why you should only judge by this standard. I'm willing to be judged by the Scripture. You should be too. But we should also be committed to only judging others by the Scripture. We need to go into reconciliation with a mindset that says, I need God to help me see myself clearly. I mean, it appears that God sees us like this. He says, don't you see that big stick in your eye? No, no, I can't see anything. That's the problem. Our willingness to humble ourselves before God and others comes with a promise. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Does this guarantee that if you do everything right, everyone else will also do everything right, and every attempt at reconciliation will result in a wonderful, happy ever after? No, it does not. But there is a guarantee, and it's this. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you in due time. That's the guarantee. Humility is a Christian virtue and is absolutely necessary if we want to see God empower our reconciliation. Be careful what your standard of judgment is. It needs to be God's word, and it needs to go inward before it goes outward. Effective reconciliation requires humility going in, and the second point on the other side of your notes today. We have to have a clear vision of what we are trying to accomplish in the process of reconciliation, the ambition or the desire or the goal or the aim of reconciliation is Christ-likeness. The question we need to ask ourselves in reconciliation is this, what am I trying to accomplish? What am I trying to accomplish? Am I trying to get even? 
Am I trying to make him or her feel bad? Am I trying to make them agree with me? Am I trying to make them go away? Or do I desire for this person what Christ desires for them? And I think one of the best summaries of that is right here from Ephesians 5 in this famous passage about husbands and wives when it says, Husbands, you're supposed to act like Christ in caring for your wife. In particular, he said, Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's referring to the cross. He gave himself. He died for the church. That's all of us believers. Why? So that he might sanctify, set her apart, set Christians apart to God, and cleanse Christians with the washing of water by the word, so that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, why did Christ save me? See, our typical thinking is, well, Christ saved me so I wouldn't go to hell. Now, that's true, but this right here tells us the ultimate purpose of our salvation. Christ died on the cross so that when you believe in him, he can wash your sins away. And eventually, at the end of your life, or when the rapture comes and he takes us off this planet, we will all be gathered to him. The imagery is used of a bride and a husband. And the imagery is of the husband standing here, looking out, and seeing his bride. I was scheduled to sing to my wife at our wedding. And my best man, who was a friend from college, he said, I'll be ready in case you can't do it. I said, hey, no problem, man. I've traveled all over the West Coast and sung in all, you know, dozens and dozens of places. No problem, no problem. And I'm standing there, and she turns the corner and comes in, and I went, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> she was beautiful. She was prepared for that day. Christ is in the business of making us Beautiful for the day when we are finally joined with him face to face. While we are close to him now, we are not face to face yet. And so what is he doing to get us ready for that? He's cleaning us up. He's scrubbing all the sin off. Now I know that when we accept Christ, the complete penalty for sin is taken away, and I'm ready to go to heaven at any day but I also know that I have sin that is being worked out of my life, not to earn my salvation, but to prepare me for that day when I see Christ. And Christ is actively working to clean me up. Not so he can stand up and say, I told you so. Not so he can look at us and say, well, you're a filthy piece of human flesh. You're lucky to be here. Those are the kind of thoughts that we have when we get into conflict with people. And what God wants us to have is a heart of compassion that says, I want you to know Christ in his fullness. And I believe that in the condition of your life right now, you're not experiencing that. 
And so we go to people to help them be more like Christ. Years ago, 15 years ago, I counseled a woman. I met her and her husband when their marriage fell on extremely hard times. And in the course of our counseling, what came to light was the fact that she had been sexually abused as a young girl by her two cousins. Actually, excuse me, by her brother and her cousin. And uh, this was a huge burden on her, as we can well imagine. One of the aspects of dealing with a conflict like that is whether or not to confront and how to confront. I mean, obviously, we look at a situation like that, and, and there's no doubt where the right and the wrong lies. I mean, there's no debate. No gray zone. They were wrong. She was right. I got no... That's exactly how it was. But the question the Christian has to ask is, am I going to confront and how am I going to confront? You see, because the book of Proverbs says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. If we dwell on the hurts and the wrongs, and the feelings of dislike, you can call it hatred or make it some better word, whatever you want. When you dwell on that, the result is strife or discord between people. But godly love is like a healing salve that covers all sins. Proverbs 17, he who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. And so the Christian has to say, why do I want to confront? Am I trying to stir up strife? Am I trying to get even? Am I trying to get justified? You see, when you have been injured, when you have been wronged, you may choose to let love cover the sin, or you may choose to confront the sinner. Either one is a godly choice. But the challenging part of the confrontation, especially in the case of something so heinous as sexual abuse, is your motivation for the confrontation. Do you want what Christ wants for the offender, or do you just want your pound of flesh? Our sinful nature is so twisted that we like having the power of injury over another person. We want to go and say, you wronged me, and they go, yes, I know, I'm terrible. And we like to hold that. Because we think, yeah, you're bad, and I'm good. And when that happens, who are we? We're Pharisees. You're bad, I'm good. Godly confrontation is concerned with that bad person becoming good. And if I don't confront you, you might go on in your sin, and that would be terrible. That would be worse than the, the wrong you've done to me. And so I have to help you. That's the mentality we've got to have about confrontation and conflict and reconciliation. 
true disciples want other people to be disciples. True disciples want others to have a clearing conscience and clear communication with God. True disciples want others to know the joy and peace of the Lord so they confront when they have to with the desire of helping the offender to be right with God. I think that's what it means to live this verse out. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you. What more blessing could there be than, I want you to be like Christ. What more good can we do than to work at helping others be like Christ? What better prayer can we pray than, oh God, help him or her become more like Christ. If these are going to be true, we are going to have to wrestle with God long before we talk to our brother. You see, these issues are the plank that are in our eye. Do we want this other person to be right with God, to know God's joy and peace? Then yes, we've got to help them get rid of that twig. But if we don't get rid of this, then we're just going in our human flesh. If we're going to do this, it's only going to come out of this kind of a heart. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In fact, if we are approaching reconciliation with godly humility, what might even happen in the process, and then let, let, let's say we work really hard with God and we, and we get rid of that thing, and we go to our brother and, 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 and we're going saying, okay, God, let's, let's help our brother. And then the brother says, do you know, brother, have you thought about this? And God goes, that's right, Dave. I know you've been working to do things right, but there's something else you've been missing as well as him or her. And if we are a true disciple, then what we are concerned about is us being like Christ and him or her being like Christ. It's not about me being right and them being wrong or vice versa. If your goal is truly to be more like Christ, you will ultimately be glad, even though it will not be easy when you find out something you haven't done right. If your goal is simply to be proven right, then the disaster of a larger conflict awaits. If your goal is to do things as easily as possible, just smooth out the waters, then mediocrity awaits. But if your goal is the spiritual best for the other person with whom you want to reconcile and for yourself, then God will be honored and God will be seen to be at work. Some of you are wondering, what's the end of the story for the lady who was abused? And I know you are because sometimes when I don't tell the end of the story, 
you come and ask me afterwards. The end of the story is better than the beginning. (laughs) We talked and we prayed and we looked at Scripture. And she worked to get rid of that, which for her was forgiveness. And then we wrote a letter of confrontation so that she could be righteous and biblical and loving in the words that she said. And we carefully considered them and we worked on them at length. And she took the letter to her brother and to her cousin. And her cousin laughed at her. And acted like you would expect an ungodly person to act. Her brother confessed his sin to her. And their relationship was restored. And a year later, she went to his baptism. Now, she could have got her pound of flesh by going to the police. And I'm, I'm a law enforcement guy, you know that. But she got more by doing what God says. She got one relationship restored this way, and her relationship freed up this way. And 15 years later, She's still growing in the Lord, and her husband was restored, and their family is growing in the Lord. Godly reconciliation requires an attitude of humility and a desire for Christ-likeness. May we run hard after these challenging but worthwhile attributes. Father, honor yourself in us, it is so hard not to be self-serving, especially when we've been wronged. Father, like, like Mariah learned at camp, may we learn today to put ourselves in your hands, even if life is hard, no matter what. And may we do that by approaching reconciliation with humility and with an ambition for Christ to be seen in us and in others. Oh God, I pray in the name of Christ. Amen.